even when everything is against us, God is still for us. Even when everything is against us, God is still for us. And if you don't think God uses broken people from broken families in broken situations to fulfill his promises, then you haven't ever really read this book. Because honestly, it's sort of his specialty. And even just think about this story of Joseph. What a mess. I mean, you thought your family had issues, but this guy, nothing compares. This story of Joseph now, it, it ends, now it ends in Genesis chapter 50 and the death of Joseph's father, Jacob. And Joseph is 56 years old when his dad dies. And he is about to make the long trip, 300 plus miles, away from the land God had promised, all the way back to Egypt. But this wasn't the first time Joseph made that journey. He'd made that same trip 40 years earlier. But that time he was in chains, hungry dehydrated, exhausted, forced to walk the entire way. That's when his brothers sold him as a slave. And now he and his brothers, those same brothers, make that same journey back to Egypt. Forty years earlier, but he remembered Forty years ago, he, he wept when he was, you know, sold and stripped naked and completely abandoned by everyone. This time, he weeps again, but everything else is different. This time, he leads the way. Almost like royalty, almost more Egyptian than Jewish, and certainly more king than shepherd. His brothers had meant to destroy him. And now they were journeying back. They owed Joseph everything. Without Joseph, they and all of their family would have died in the famine. And if you think about it, so would God's promise have died in that famine. His promise to rescue us from that family. And so now Joseph heads back to Egypt with his brothers, this this long, long journey, plenty of time to think and reflect on all the strange and terrible events that had brought him to this point. I mean, how exactly does a foreigner, a shepherd, a slave become the number two guy in Egypt so that he can single-handedly rescue God's people from famine and keep God's promise moving forward? How does that happen? Well, his brothers are terrified. Their dad is dead now. What's to stop Joseph from taking his revenge? They know what they deserve. And so they grovel at the feet of their brother, begging for forgiveness. But Joseph sees things a little bit more clearly now than he did back then. And he doesn't justify their evil against him. But, but he says to them in chapter 50, verse 20, he says, As for you, my brothers, 
You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To, to bring it about that many people be, should be kept alive as they are today. God meant it for good. For, for Joseph knew as people of the promise, as God's people, God always means it for good. He knew even when everything is against us, God is still for us. He knew that now, 40 years later, but I can't help but wonder if he thought at that moment, golly, I wish I had known all that back then. I wish I had known it with all that I went through growing up in that house. I wish I had known it when I was a slave or a prisoner or forgotten. I wish I had known all of this when I was strangely promoted and yet still so desperately alone and estranged from my family. If only I saw back then what I see so clearly now. Because back at the beginning, everything was piled against him. And we know that feeling to some extent, right? We, we know what it feels like to have everything against us, every situation, every which way we turn, every circumstance we find ourselves, and it's just heartache. Well, tell that to Joseph. Historically speaking, we're talking right around 1900 BC, 3900 years ago. And if you're here last week, or if you're reading along, we saw that God made these incredible promises to Abraham. He promised that, that Abraham would, would have a family, that he would have a land, that, that God would be their God. And ultimately, God promised Abraham that his plan to rescue humanity would come through his family. And, and that God would restore all that we had lost in the Garden of Eden somehow through them. God makes outrageous promises and he keeps them. Abraham had Isaac. Isaac had Jacob, and Jacob had Joseph. We're only three generations into this promise. And you take one look at this family and you think, them? Really? I mean, God, this, this is your family? This is the best you can do? These people? Because, I mean, they're kind of a mess. I mean, even if you, if you think about the, the broader story, so, so Jacob, Joseph's father, he has 12 sons from, from four wives. The first wife, Leah, he never loved, didn't even want to marry her. He was tricked into marrying her by his father-in-law, but she was fertile myrtle, okay? She had six sons. And then there were four other sons from his two lesser wives, okay? Those two wives were just serv servants of the other two. And then there was Rachel, Rachel was the wife that Jacob loved. She was the one that he actually wanted to marry in the first place. But Rachel was barren. And so when Rachel actually had two children, I mean, for Jacob, everything changed. And Joseph was the oldest of Rachel's children. And when Joseph's story begins in, in Genesis 37, we're going to kind of walk through the story. Uh, if you have your Bibles, try to follow along. We'll put the scripture up there as well. But his story really begins in Genesis 37 when Joseph is 17 years old. And everybody knows that Joseph is his daddy's favorite. Oh, they all know it. And if you think, I mean, if you just think about it, 
If his brothers were willing to sell him as a slave at age 17, you can be pretty well assured that life growing up in that family the previous 17 years wasn't exactly a cakewalk. I mean, Joseph would have received more than his fair share of wedgies, right? His, his brothers, I'm sure, found ways, numerous ways, to try to torment him every single day of his life. But at least he had a fancy coat from his dad, right? And then Joseph started having dreams. That's when it got really fun. And I don't know what possessed him to actually communicate what he was dreaming about. I just sort of picture him one day. Hey, brothers who hate me, come over here. I had this dream and you're not going to believe it. I just got to tell somebody. And so I'm going to tell you. So this dream was about, you know, we were all collecting wheat. And we were putting our wheat in bundles. But my bundle of wheat was way taller than everybody's. Frank, I mean, it kind of looked like a king, actually. And all of your bundles of wheat were bowing down to my bundles of wheat. So I guess I'm going to rule over you guys. See ya. I mean, I, I don't know if, I mean, he's 17, okay? But I don't know if he's just arrogant or stupid or what. But that was a, that was a bad idea. Because soon after that happens, his brothers begin making plans, debating about what they're going to do with this little dreamer. I say we kill him. I mean, I can't even hardly imagine a family in which a suggestion like that actually comes up, more or less one where it's almost unanimous. But it just so happens that the eldest had a little bit of a pang of of guilt in that moment. I mean, we don't want to, we don't want his blood on our hands. We don't want to feel guilty all of our life. Let's not kill him. Let's just, let's sell him as a slave and pretend that he's dead, right? I mean, we can make a little money, get rid of our brother. It's brilliant. Let's just do that. And it just so happened, as they're making that decision, that that a band of slave traders who just happened to be going to Egypt were passing by. It says they were descendants of Ishmael, if you remember all that drama from last week. And so his brothers do that. They sell him right there, as a slave. And they go back, they take his, his coat of many colors, they dip it in some animal's blood, they bring it back to their father Jacob and say, Oh, your favorite son, sorry, must have got eaten by a wild animal. And then the story moves on. I mean, what an incredible beginning to such a, such a story. Now, we read all this, or we can talk about it all, uh, but we know how the story ends, right? That's, that's how we began this, God meant it for good. We, we, we know that, but Joseph didn't know any of that. I'm sure God would, God would save his people from famine through Joseph. And Jesus, we know even further, right? Jesus is one of their descendants. Because Joseph suffered, the Jewish people survived, and because they survived, Jesus would come. And because Jesus came, we live. It all sort of hinges there. If they'd all died in the famine, God would be a liar, and there would be no rescue left for us. But God didn't tell Joseph any of that. And if there's any lesson we learn from this this first scene of the story... It's that God doesn't always tell us. And it'd be kind of nice, right? If God had come to Joseph, hey, you know what, Joseph, buddy, uh, I really need you to take one for the team here. It's all going to make sense eventually. No, God doesn't say any of that. Not only does he not ask him, he doesn't even tell him what's going on. Joseph has no clue except for a couple of weird dreams that really caused him more harm than good. 
And isn't that usually the case with us? I mean, when, when everything seems like it's against us, I mean, we might, we might have the faith to believe deep within us that God is up to something. But he almost never tells us. I mean, the aha for Joseph came 40 years later. Sometimes it never comes. But we trust him. So now imagine this country boy entering into Egypt, the great superpower of that day. The pyramids, the Sphinx, all of those had already been built by this point. I mean, Joseph would have certainly seen them and seen all of Egypt there in its glory. And it just so happened that, that Joseph gets sold to Potiphar. Potiphar was, was one of Pharaoh's officials, his captain of the guard. We, we read about this in Genesis 39. And so although a slave, life in Potiphar's house, I mean, it was, it was okay. I mean, yeah, he was still a slave, but I mean, he, he worked hard. He made the most of, of every chance that he got there. And eventually this, this teenager was promoted to a position of influence there in Potiphar's home. Still a slave, but at least he was the favorite slave, right? And God was with him in his slavery. It says in 39 verse 2, it says the Lord was with Joseph and he became a successful man. It goes on, it says, his master saw how, saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. Okay, all right, you know, I mean, he's still a slave, still a foreigner, still estranged from, from his entire family, but God was with him and a terrible situation becomes just a little bit less terrible. Except that life at Potiphar's house wasn't going to keep God's promise moving forward. I mean, as comfortable as that situation was there and, and finally feel like, okay, maybe this is... Joseph wouldn't have saved anybody from famine. Nothing would have happened there for God's promise. That's when Potiphar's wife gets involved. You see, it says in verse 6 that Joseph was kind of a hottie. And it's pretty clear that Potiphar's wife was kind of a cougar. Uh, Her husband would go on these really long business trips and she would get lonely, really lonely to say the least. And so she kept trying to seduce Joseph. But every time, he refused. It says in in verse 9, Joseph responds, he says, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And from that day on, Joseph refuses even to go near her until that one day. That day, I'm sure Joseph replayed the memories in his mind over and over and over during those 40 years. It was that one day when all the servants were out of the house Joseph, he just happened to be nearby, and once again, I mean, she was persistent. Once again, she tries to seduce Joseph. She grabs onto his cloak, and and Joseph, I mean, he sprints out of there so fast that he leaves his coat behind. The evidence. 
And at this point, I mean, I kind of think, wow, like, way to go, Joseph, right? I mean, we kind of want to applaud that a little bit. This, this, this young man alone, isolated, anonymous, he's got every reason to be bitter. I mean, doesn't he, doesn't he deserve just a little bit of happiness, a little bit of, of comfort in that moment? No, he doesn't. But I'm not sure I would have been as strong, especially when I was that age. Way to go, Joseph. And at this point in the story, you kind of just sort of expect, I mean, something good has to happen, right? It's got to. Look at this guy. Look at what he said no to. Look at his character. Look at his intent. So we just sort of wait for it, right? Wait for it. Wait for it. It's not going to happen. Lesson number two, good isn't always rewarded. At least not how or when we think it should. I mean, really, some of us, if we're, if we're really honest, some of us are shocked when bad things happen to us. Aren't we? Be honest. Because we kind of think deep within, we may not actually ever say this, but we think deep within, but, I, but I'm one of the good ones. I mean, I, I go to church, I, I, I you know, I... I mean, I'm decent enough of, of, a, of a life. Doesn't, doesn't God sort of owe me a smooth life? Why could, how could a, God, how could you let a bad thing happen to me? I'm one of the good ones. And the pain of our situation then is just magnified by the ensuing disillusionment that comes. God doesn't owe us anything. Bad things happen to good people all the time. So get in line. Sure, God is for us. Absolutely, he is for us. But sometimes everything else really is just flat out against us. Joseph's reward for doing the right thing? Immediately, Potiphar's wife begins shouting, Rape! Rape! And and all the servants rush in from outside, and she has his cloak to prove it. And slaves were given no trial back then. And so Joseph is sent off to spend what would be assumed to be the rest of his miserable existence in a prison. Not just a slave anymore. Now he's an imprisoned slave, accused of raping the wife of one of Pharaoh's head honchos. Even when everything is against us, God is still for us. It certainly doesn't seem like it in the thick of it. Well, it just so happens that Joseph was sent to the king's prison, Pharaoh's prison. And even there, it says in chapter 39, verse 21, it says, The Lord was with Joseph. And showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge. Then a a little further down it says, The keeper of the prison, the the warden, paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge. Because the Lord was with him and whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. He was still a prisoner. But at least he was the favorite prisoner. And the Lord was with him in his confinement. Year after year after year. Until by now he's 28 years old. 11 years have gone by. And it just so happens that that one particular day, 
Two of Pharaoh's servants also got thrown into this prison. And, you know, Joseph got to know them a little bit. And it it just happened that these two servants had dreams. If you remember from the beginning of the story, Joseph had dream skills, right? And so he says to them, 40 verse 21, Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. And because God was with him, Joseph knew what their dreams meant. Uh, For the baker, Joseph essentially said, Well, your dream means that Pharaoh is going to raise up your head. Like, a little too far. Um, I mean, that's the language that he uses. And then the birds are going to eat your flesh. That's what he tells the, the baker. Sorry, dude. And then he tells the cupbearer, actually he tells the cupbearer first. I mean, the cupbearer is essentially, he's, the, he's kind of the wine guy. I mean, that's sort of, he was the cupbearer. He tells the, the cupbearer pretty much the same thing. He says, Pharaoh is going to raise up your head in honor. You are going to be vindicated and restored. But do me a favor when you get there, if you would. I'm innocent. I'm, I'm dying down here. Would you please just tell Pharaoh, put, put in a good word for me. I'm, I'm begging you, get me out of this place. Well, it all happened just like Joseph had predicted it would. But the cupbearer forgot. So close. Lesson number three when everything is against us. It's easy to be forgotten. Insult to injury. Will anyone ever come to our aid? Will anyone ever care? Will anybody ever respond with just a little bit of compassion in whatever situation we're going through? I mean, there are few times in life more lonely than true and desperate heartache. How lonely those years of Joseph's life must have felt. But God was with him. God was with him. God was with him. Even even when everyone forgets, even when you feel utterly alone, even when despair seems inevitable, God is with us. Two two more years go by. Now Joseph is, is 30. And it just so happens that Pharaoh also, at that point, had a dream. One of those dreams that's way too weird to understand, but seems way too important simply to ignore. And so Pharaoh began asking everyone around him, everyone in his his court, if they could help him with this dream. And then finally, the cupbearer. Oh yeah, I totally forgot. There's this guy in your prison, his name is Joseph, and he, he... you know, he interpreted my dream and he got it exactly right. He also got the baker's dream right. Let's, let's ask him. And Pharaoh, I mean, if you think about it, Pharaoh is desperate enough to actually do it. To, to ask this, this Hebrew, this foreigner, this slave, this prisoner, this accused rapist into his court. And he says, hey, Joseph, I've had this dream. Can you help me? I've been dreaming, essentially, Pharaoh says, about these cows. 
And, and the dream starts, and there are these seven fat cows. And I mean, I'm telling you, they are the fattest, healthiest cows you've ever seen. You just look at them, and you get, you get mouth-watering for steak, right? And, and then what happens is the, there's these other seven cows. They just sort of come up, and, and these cows are the skinniest, nastiest, scrawniest beasts you have ever seen. And then the skinny cows eat the fat cows. But that's not the weirdest part, Pharaoh says. The skinny cows don't get any fatter. They eat them, but they, they don't change a bit. They're just as unhealthy and scrawny as they've ever been. Joseph, tell me what it means. Well, Joseph begins by saying, you know, maybe lay off the double cheeseburgers before bed. Might be a good place to begin. He doesn't really say that. But he, he says to them, right there in 41 verse 16, Joseph answered Pharaoh, It's not in me, he says. But God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Here's what the dream means, he says. The next seven years, your kingdom is going to be the the fattest it's ever been. Every harvest is going to be bountiful. You and your people are going to have more than you've ever had before, more than you could ever wish for or possibly need. But the seven years after that are going to be so terrible that you're not even going to remember the good years before it. Everyone and everything is going to die. It is going to stretch beyond Egypt into the surrounding nations. It's going to be terrible. I wonder if at that moment Joseph thought about his family back in Canaan. But, Joseph said, we could do something. I mean, you could do something. He's kind of like giving Pharaoh a little elbow here. I've got some ideas on, on what we can do here. If we, during these next seven years, we save up everything that we can and we work really, really hard, then we can get through the seven bad years. We'll, we'll survive it. We'll be okay. In 41 verse 38, Pharaoh said to his servants, can we fa- find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. We talk about a promotion. It's like taking somebody from death row and making him the vice president. And do you see what's happening here? We remember our message from last week. God promised Abraham that through your people, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Here it even begins. How many millions of people from how many nations would Joseph end up saving from famine? Working for the common good of the people around him? Completely estranged from everything that he's known, and yet he continues to work and plan and serve. And he makes an incredible difference in that world. But he was still estranged from his family. Until the famine got so bad that it stretched all the way up back to his father and to his brothers, to all of his niece and nephews there. When Joseph was 39 years old now, his father, his brothers, their wives, children, they all begin to starve. And so his brothers end up in desperation. They also end up there in Egypt. They have no idea what's going on. In fact, they end up, just so happens, in Joseph's office. Now, it's been more than two decades. Joseph recognizes them, but they have no idea who Joseph is. And they bow down before him. Remember the dreams? 
And they plead with Pharaoh's number two guy for just a little food to save our family, to save everything. And while it takes chapters to tell the story of their reconciliation, a lot of us will be reading it this, this week, uh, it's confusing and it gets a little bit weird at times. Sometimes you think Joseph is a little bit mean in this situation. It's hard to, to follow. And yet at the end of the day, and really it, it took years, Joseph forgives his brothers. And they and all of their families moved to Egypt, 70 of them in total. And they're all well-fed, saved, and reunited together. God's plan doesn't die in this famine. It doesn't die with Joseph and his brothers. God will rescue his people. And now, at age 56, that's where we started, Joseph has buried his father. Joseph wanted to be buried back in the promised land. And he and his brothers are making that long trek back to their temporary home in Egypt. And Joseph now knows, as he thinks back, all the circumstances, all of the coincidences that brought him to that place, Joseph knows as the tears run down his cheeks, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And as Joseph reflected on all the suffering and all the, the good that came about, lesson number four, God's way sometimes hurts. I mean, why did God choose this particular path to rescue his people and eventually to rescue us? Well, there was a famine and somebody had to rescue God's people from famine, right? So Joseph had to suffer. But God's God, right? He could have just made it rain. Right? He could have made more food grow, and yet the path he chooses is one that brings Joseph incredible heartache most of his life. Why? Well, we don't know, do we? But we do know that God's way often hurts. Maybe it's because in those, those difficult moments, that's when we, we begin to really learn what it means to, to trust God. Or maybe it's because in those, those places of heartbreak, we feel his presence unlike in other times. Or, or maybe it's then that we can actually say with faith and even with tears that even when everything is against us, God is still for us. We don't know why Joseph suffered like he did. But we know that in this broken world, God often uses ugliness to harvest beauty. I mean, we're the ones who broke this world in our rebellion as we chose to rebel against our God. But isn't it amazing that our God continues, even in the midst of all the brokenness, continues to use broken people from broken families and broken situations to fulfill his promise? It's truly mind-boggling. And now we're tempted, really, in this story to sort of stop right here. Because we, we like this part. I mean, it feels like a happy ending, right? If, if we were to, 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 to play this out, and I mean, yeah, okay, there's, there's reconciliation, forgiveness, salvation. But this still isn't what God had promised them. His plan, 
to give his people a home wasn't Egypt. And so far, all of Abraham's family, all they possessed of the promised land was a grave. That's it. The place where Abraham was buried and Isaac was buried and Jacob was buried, all waiting for the promises of God to be fulfilled. And Joseph knows it. I really never noticed this, I don't think, too much in the, in the text until this week. But look at 50 verse 24. This is much years later in Joseph's life. Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die. But God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died. Being 110 years old, they embalmed him, as was common in Egypt, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Just before his death, Joseph begs his family to one day carry his bones back to the promised land. Joseph, who at this point, he had spent way more of his life in Egypt than he ever did back in Canaan. But he says, this this isn't what God promised. Egypt was necessary for our rescue, but it's, it's not what God has in mind. I mean, you, you think God has rescued now. Just you wait. Take me home. Take my bones back with you. And Joseph dies still waiting. And friends, sometimes we end still waiting. I mean, Joseph had seen God's faithfulness. He knew that God wasn't done fulfilling his promises, even in Joseph's death. And sometimes we wait what seems like forever. Sometimes we wait our entire lives, stuck somewhere between the promises of God and the broken world in which we live. But that end is never the end. Nor is this the end of God's promise. Because the book of Genesis, I mean, it ends here, right, with those words that I just read. It ends begging for a sequel. And we, I mean, we've got it right here, right? You can turn the page and you can see Exodus. But it took 400 years for the people to get there. Just between those two pages in our Bible. But we'll see as we, as we go next week. Exodus begins and the people, they've multiplied abundantly. But the Egyptians forgot how Joseph rescued them. And now they are oppressed in the very worst kind of slavery. And God will raise up another leader, another person to come and set them free. And to bring them out to the land that God had promised. And they will bring Joseph's bones with them. Even when everything is against us. God is still for us. He may never tell us. Our good may never be rewarded like we want it to. We may be forgotten. His plan may hurt along the way. And we may end continuing to wait. But if we learn anything in this story, it's that God is still for us. And I don't, I don't know what's going on in your circumstance. I don't know how much you feel like Joseph or maybe will one day feel like Joseph. But if you're one of God's people, through faith in Jesus Christ, God promises to always be with you. To never leave us. To always be working toward our good. 
And like, like Joseph, you may not see it until later on, looking back on, on your life, or, or truthfully, you may never, ever see it at all. And yet we believe that he is for us. And wow, just look at Joseph. I mean, what a guy, right? And we could end our time together by, by saying, yeah, look at Joseph. We, we all need to be a little bit more like Joseph, right? Look how he, he fled from temptation. Look how he made the most of every opportunity, how he stayed strong with his faith, even in the midst of all of the ugliness, how he forgived his enemies, how he worked for the common good. We could say all of that, and frankly, it'd be good advice. But the story of Joseph is not written down to inspire us to be a little bit more like Joseph. The story of Joseph is written down to help us trust the God that Joseph trusted. Because God is the hero of this story, not Joseph. God is the one who orchestrated the details of his life, the one who fulfilled his plans, even when we don't understand them, even when they seem bizarre to us. He is the one who brought this rescue to bear in their lives. Our God is the one who rescues, even when everything is against us. God is still for us. And you see, nothing would stop God's plan. Nothing. Because one day there'd be another man like Joseph. Not just a good man, a perfect man. One who would also be forced to seek asylum in Egypt. But not, not because of famine. But because as a, as a young child, Herod got wind that a Messiah had come. And this, this man, he, he'd be a lot like Joseph. I mean, he would also be accused. He would be hated by his brothers. He would be accused of things that he had never committed and, and truly punished for crimes that weren't his. Like Joseph, he would be abandoned and forgotten even by those who should have loved him most. One who wouldn't just forgive his brothers, but one who would die for his enemies. Everything against Jesus, the world meant for, for evil, but God meant it for our greatest good. And he doesn't just save us from famine. He saves us from, from sin and death. And he doesn't, he doesn't just promise us a, a temporary home like Egypt. He promises us a promised land, even better than the original, a, a land like Eden, but even better than that where we can know and love this God. And he doesn't just die looking to the promises of God. Looking ahead with, with hope. No, Jesus dies defeating death. Defeating all that is broken and sinful. Ensuring that God's promises will be a reality for us. Guaranteeing it. Jesus is better than Joseph. And Jesus came through this family that God chose to rescue 3,900 years ago. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? When we look back on the story of Joseph, we can say with joy, although everything was against Joseph, God was still for us. And now with all that we know about this, story, all that we know of what God has accomplished for us and all that we have seen through his son Jesus, can we say the same about ourselves, about our situations? Even when everything is against us, God is still for us. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, God, when I look at this incredible story 
I am amazed at your attention to detail in bringing your plan to life for us. God, I am amazed that you love us, your creation, so much that you would stop at nothing to rescue us, even to the point of Jesus coming and giving his life for us. God, I pray that we would see that. No matter our circumstances and whatever we we face, that if we are your children through Jesus Christ, that we can truly believe that you are always for us. Help us believe. Amen.